0: All right. Hello, and welcome to Yet Another Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. With me today, I'm happy to have Richard Sosa. Richard is the co-founder of Think Ain. Is it Think Ain or Think AEN? We just Think said it. AIN. Like,
1: Think AEN. Think AIN. AIN.
0: He's also the host of the Riches and Niches podcast. So I've got a little bit of a competitor on here, but that's okay because I really enjoy the Riches and Niches podcast. Richard, how's it going? So I'm going well. How are you doing? Doing good. Hey, let me start this podcast the way I do every podcast. First, the disclaimers remind everyone nothing on this podcast is investing advice. Everyone should do their own research and keep that in mind. And then the second way I started your podcast is with a pitch for you, my guests, I guess I'll give two pitches for you. First, I mentioned up front Riches and Niches podcast. You know, It's very similar to this podcast. A lot of times it's people coming on, particularly microcap companies, pitching microcap companies, giving you detailed history. My buddy Dave Waters has been on several times and I've certainly listened to those. So that would be the first pitch. And then uh, the second way is you know, just a pitch for the company we're about to talk about. Back in February, I said, hey, I'm looking for ways to play the SPAC boom. I, I want kind of picks and shovel plays. And the only person who mentioned the stock we're going to talk about today was you. And you said, this is the most obvious way in the world. This company is way undervalued, whether you think SPACs have legs or not. I ignored it because it had spin dynamics. I looked at it in the past and I thought it was broken. And shame on me because the stock is a triple in 10 months since then. So Good for you for staying up to date and kind of rethinking the story as things evolve. So that pitch out the way. I'll just turn over to you. The ticker, the stock is Donnelly Financial. The ticker is DFIN.
1: I'll give it to you. What is DFIN, and why are we so interested in it? All right, perfect. That's great. Thanks for the intro, Andrew. I really appreciate you having me on. Um, look, I'm I, I'm passionate about three things: uh, one, investor education; two, storytelling; and three, niche investing. You know, on hey. the
0: are you passionate about baseball too? Because I saw throws lefty in a profile somewhere, and I feel like there might be baseball as well. And I see a football helmet back there. Yeah,
1: I, I'm a big football guy. I, I like baseball growing up. Um, it's uh, I guess I'm a pretty big baseball fan. You know, I'm, I'm from Northern Virginia and like the, the Washington Nationals. And kind of um, was excited to have them come from Montreal. And and uh, of course, yeah, I like sports. Uh, I like the competitive nature of it, and I'm a big Washington sports fan. But now to get you off track, passionate about niche socks. All right. So first, you know, on the investor education side, thank you for having me on the show. Um, I'm a big believer in people doing their own research. Right. And and uh, and with investing in stocks and really any asset class, the more education you have, I think the better. And your show does a great job into just finding people and having them talk ideas, because at the end of the day, you know, people have to get their ideas from somewhere. And ultimately it's the the conviction level and the sizing that make great investors, right? And, and it's really just being in front of ideas. That's, I think it's super important. And it's why I started a podcast and I, why I like your podcast, and why I like a lot of podcasts, Just it's out there. Everyone's got to find what's comfortable for them. So mm-hmm. I think it's great that you do it. I like your format, really simple. Um, and it breaks it down and it goes into a deep dive on certain names. So I think that's great. Um, I appreciate that. Just with that, you know, I like getting swag from from people I'm passionate about, people that w- where I believe in the mission. And On Ramp Academy, it's um, a firm started by by uh, Tyrone Ross. this On Ramp, and what I believe they do is they um, they provide registered investment advisors with tools to invest and in manage crypto assets. And they also have On Ramp Academy, which is really just investor education. And you know, they sent me this a couple of days ago, and I said, you know what, this is kind of a perfect. Place to put this on because again, just education. Like I, I have some thoughts on crypto, but I'm not going to share them here. But I, what I do believe in is education. If you're going to invest in anything, you got to get up to speed. And there's, there's really no excuse because there's plenty of resources out there.
0: And and for people who are listening on the podcast because we're doing this with video over Zoom, but most people actually listen on podcasts. Richard is wearing an On Ramp sweatshirt, so that's the swag he's talking about there.
1: <laughs> All right, I appreciate it. And then you know, on the niche side. Um, you know, niche markets, by definition, they're smaller. And because they're smaller, they generally attract less capital and and less competition. That's why I've, in my day job, I like finding managers that are experts or what I call masters of niche, right? They're, um, because there's less capital and less competition, I believe you have opportunities for outside returns. Um, And as a personal investor, I kind of have the same philosophy. And I look at stocks where I believe, look, there's not a lot of capital here, but maybe, uh, maybe at some point there will be. And um, and like Andrew said, that like, there's not investment advice, you know, DFIN is just a company that I was fortunate enough to be at the right place at the right time. Um, and then there were some things that happened over the last few years that kind of raised my conviction level on the company. Um, so, wasn't sure how to start on defense, but I think what's the best way to describe it, and I'm going to read this straight from their 10K because it's very simple. What do they do, you ask me? They provide regulatory filing solutions, software solutions, print and distribution solutions to public and private companies, as well as mutual funds and other regulated firms. So they're really kind of a one-stop shop for for public companies, private companies, and investment managers. Like They file, they'll print stuff. When a company does a deal, does M&A, they're really the leader in that. That's what they do. Um before I go into DFIN, I wanted to kind of give a background on on the company and um why I think it's so cheap and and um I think it's important to understand where the company is where the company had been to where it is now mm-hmm. um, so this company was part of a, a larger company called r r which um it was a holding company a kind of a, a jack of all trade printer i mean they basically printed everything they had this finance had this financial services arm they had a magazine arm they had a, a traditional book they had a textbook i mean they do they did everything right and it was a roll up strategy and a hundred and fifty or something year old company um with with DFIN really being you know most of Defen was acquired at r Donnelly over the last you know from like two thousand five to two thousand ten so um, it's really it was the newer part of Donnelly. Um, yep. And in 2015, as you can imagine, the printing business was hemorrhaging losses, right? And there was just look, at the end of the day, people were printing less stuff, right? And the company had, since it had been built really on acquisitions, had a ton of debt. And um, there were some good parts and some not so good parts. And in I think 2015, they made a decision, hey, we got to split this up. Like, this doesn't make any sense um being this big company with just a lot of debt we you know we have to realize value in some way for shareholders and really i think to to remain you know to not go bankrupt i mean it was it was yep. bad um so at that time they decided to split up into three um and from what i've heard like they always split it up where they'd remain rr R. Donnelly would be just you know some of the traditional printing stuff um lsc communications that was really the um the magazine and textbook printing that they did for, for clients. Um, from what, from my understanding, that was always split up to sell to, um, to another company. And uh, you know, I'm blanking on the company now I, for some reason I'm blanking on it. Uh, not important. It was intended to sell that company and, and they actually had a merger in place and the, the FCC came in and said, no. Oh, I actually remember up.
0: that. Yeah. I remember that. And I remember, cause it, Loose memory, but you're right. I, I think that's it's like textbook or magazine publishing or something and the FCC block. Tip. I remember, you know, I, I'm friends with uh, several M&A involved people and all of them were like, especially the libertarian ones were like, all right, I, I understand there's a need for antitrust. But are we really
1: concerned about magazine publishing right now? Is that really yeah. where the competitive landscape is? Exactly. That's exactly what happened. And, and so with Defin, it was always kind of set up, you know, spun off to sell to Bridger. It was just the most complimentary business. And it was, um, and then not to mention the, the synergies, right? Broadridge people don't know this. Like I'm shocked. I've actually spoken to Broadridge investors. It, the 20, 20% of their business is printing documents. I like think mm-hmm. a, do- a ton of proxy statements. That's where they print most of their stuff. I mean, they they don't, you, I don't even think you can find the word print in their, in their filings, but That's they, really print funny. Lot, they print a lot of stuff. So, um and they definitely don't have a print division. I mean I'm sure you can find print, you know, in there cuz obviously they have plants and and you know there's there's a cost and working capital involved tied up with that space, but it's um it's uh, th- that's been an absolute monster of a company. And Bridrich spun out of ADP I think in you know mid 2005 and it's just been a nice you know, a textbook compounder, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the core business has got a, a nice moat, um very little competition, but it's in a you know, slow growth space. I mean, it ultimately you need more proxy battles. You need more companies. You need more these things happening. And there's not a lot of growth there. And, and uh, but it was a highly cash generated business. They go out and do deals, do deals. And they've just been doing that. You know, even though it's only growing three to 5% a year, it have been doing that. And now the thing trades at like, I don't know, with 27, 28 multiple. And it's just a nice stock, you know, stock, a coffee can stock. It really is. I mean, look at the chart, boom. So, um, I give that background because it's important to understand that RR Donnelly was a mess, right? When they bought, from my understanding, when they bought what makes up DFIN today in like 2010, the, the biggest part of DFIN really was purchased in 2010. It was called Brown and Company. Um, mm-hmm. That's what most of DFIN is today. And from what I've read and what I understand, like there was zero invested in the business. They didn't invest anything, right? And, you know, over the next Five years. I mean, you had competitors come up and say like Workiva and say, you know what, we're just going to take market share. I mean, yep. Donley was doing some digital stuff filings and they were they were doing some electronic stuff, but they weren't investing in it, right? They were just had had the moat, right? They had the business. They didn't really care. I mean, and then nor could our Donley do anything, right? Uh, which uh, part of the reason they another part that spun it off, like now it's its own company, it could do all these things. So you had. A lot of underinvestment for really five or six years. I mean, you had no investment in, in what was Donnelly from 2010 um, to 2015. You had no so,
0: so it's, I mean, I I put this up, but it, this is classic spin dynamics, right? For right. Uh, for about six years before R.O. Donnelly buys this business and then it's, it's not their core business. The company's a little over leveraged and they're just not only are they not paying any attention to it, but they're just taking the cash flow out and taking it to exactly. nefarious corporate purposes, basically. Right. Exactly. So this spins out in 2016. And I and a lot of other people look at it in 2016. I can tell you I had this baggage until about four hours ago when I was preparing for this podcast. But it spins out, and you look at it and you say, oh, no growth business, lots of print. Uh, you know, probably mismanaged and spins out in me and everyone's passes. And if I remember correctly, the first earnings report, they just missed their numbers like crazy and the stock got hammered. So that's the background. But I think you start getting interested in 2020. So what attracts you and what's kind of
1: changed about the story since then? So um, you didn't ask, but you kind of implied it. Like what got me interested? I actually had been following the company. Um, so I followed right then in 2007, probably 2017, probably right when you looked at it, because As I recall, there was a few activist investors immediately coming and telling the company sell. I was like, "Company just spun off. It's not going to sell." Like, I mean, it doesn't work that way. Spinoff dynamics don't. You can't just sell a company. I mean, I think there is usually a minimum of two to three years where you cannot, you cannot even engage. You 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 could do it within one year, but it's two years if you don't. Has to be the reverse. It has to be someone has to engage with you. Yeah, yeah. So it's possible
0: you could, but. You could do it within one year, but it's two years is good. And then John Malone, who the IRS keeps really close tabs on, three years is where it's like you can do anything you want, just go crazy and they won't care. So John Malone only does it after three years because the IRS is on to him.
1: Yeah, well, that, that makes sense. I mean, it's for a reason for that. So um, so that's someone called me, you know, talking about network. You know, I I, I believe in investing. You need network, right? Via podcast, via other investors. And a good friend of mine called me and said, Sosa, you got to look at this. It's Donley. They spun this off. It. It's, um, you know, you remember RRD, like that, that terrible company. Like this was like their prime, like their, their crown jewel. And they're eventually going to sell the broader version. It's perfect. It's, you know, the stock was at 25 or something and it's, it'll sell for 50. Like that kind of thing it was perfect. So I was like, ah, okay. I looked at it and I was like, man, it was, it was a mess. Like they spun off. So company was doing about a billion dollars in, in revenue at the time doing 15 percent EBITDA margins. So, you know, generated mm-hmm. good, good cash, 25-50 million dollars, but had six hundred million dollars of net debt, um, at about six and a half percent combined interest, right? So it was manageable because it was even though the, the revenues vol- was volatile, like the cash flow was the cash was there, it was it was there, um, but still it's a lot of debt for for a company uh that is was at the time of their sales came from printing, you know, printing documents, 40%. Um, So it was, and then not to mention the fact that capital markets is extremely volatile. And, you know, since a a lot, all most of their print stuff where they have any kind of margin or or, or business is in the IPO, M&A, distressed debt, bankruptcy business. And um, they not only spun out with this mess, but over the next three years, there was kind of a lull. Uh, people forget this. Like you know, from 2016 to 2018, IPOs were you know, everyone was private, right? Everyone you wanted to stay private. You had all these you know companies that you're seeing now. They didn't go public. It's right? something I
0: was going to ask you about later, but it, I'll I'll even add on to that. Not only was everyone private. I mean, people forget there were talks of what happens when all the not just is everyone private, but what happens when all the public market companies go private, right? Because public companies were looking and they were saying we don't get great multiples. Uh, we think our private market value is higher. We go private. We don't have to report quarterly earnings, deal with short sellers, deal with activists. Uh, we don't have to spend, you know, public companies, big ones will spend 10 million plus on being an acti- on being a public company. That's a lot of money. They're looking at it saying, what's the point? We don't raise money from the private, public markets. Let's go private. So there was this huge take private trend. And I think a lot of people were looking and saying the number of public companies out there keeps shrinking and shrinking. Defen is, they're a shrinking business just because they're the company data set they're, they're after shrinking.
1: So you kind of nailed. There's, there were two big um, headwinds that faced the company at at that time. Well, three. You know, one was the debt, which at the time I thought was manageable. It was man. It was you know, it was, it was a high leverage, right? Um, you had that. You had the whole. You had the fact that there were less public companies. There was less and less, and people exactly what you said. That was a, that was a headwind. I mean, there were and their business, their clients were just evaporating, yep. um, and. Um, the, the third one was the print, like you, you had, they were a business that printed a lot of documents and you knew for a fact that they're just going to be people printing that stuff over time. And that, that's just a natural thing. Um, so, you know, in 2017, I'd followed it, you know, I think I purchased like a hundred shares I just Wanted to follow it. Like, the, you know, the guy that pitched me the stock was pretty good with these things. Right. So I took the time to try to understand the business. And let me tell you, it was, it was so hard. Right. Because as you know, investors to get a multiple, you need consistency, right? That's what that's all they care about. Let's be honest. Big investors, they want consistency and something that's predictable. Um, and Defen was not that. I mean, their revenues and profitability were all over the place. Right. Mm -hmm. So in 2017, they said something pretty interesting. I mean, they had an analyst day and and they said it with conviction, you know, we are, are not gonna do deals. Right, we are going to focus on our software offerings, and yep. we're o- over time. We're going to bring down our print business a lot, and you know, a lot of it would just come off from less printing. But they were going to voluntarily print less, where the contracts didn't make sense, and use all that working capital, really invest in the software business that, as I mentioned earlier, they're just not invested in. Yep. Right, so it was one of these things where that made sense to me. I was like, they're. What I find, what I struggle with with a lot of companies, it's the the opposite. Where they go out and like, no company wants to get smaller. It's just against everything that you're taught. It's against what you make, right? To go out and say we we are going to print less, we're going to so de- therefore decreasing sales considerably, um, and then not only do that, but take that money and invest in something where we don't, you know, we believe we know the outcome, but ultimately we don't know, right? Because we're going to be have to be taking market share. And we're going to be growing market share and taking market share from from competitors where we lost market share, right? So that's what they did. And that's got me more interested. And I said, OK, you know, that makes sense. I like that. You know, if that works, this is a home run. But, you know, how are you going to solve the volatility in the business, right? Um, and then at the, around that same time, they announced that their, their investment management business, which now... Um, makes up about 25% of the business of revenue, that that business was going to lose in one fell swoop, you know, $130 million in sales, $130 million in sales. So the investment management was much bigger, right? So a lot of the print declines that have come in the business have come from the investment management business from uh, a regulatory change that said, okay, if you're an investment manager, your default setting doesn't have to be, doesn't, you're not legally obligated to have your default setting be a printed statement.
0: Yeah, if That's you're a mutual system. fund, you don't have to send your clients printed statements every month or every quarter. Unless you can they, just, ask. It, exactly. And I just want to put in perspective. You said this regulatory change cost them 130 million in revenue. Right. This is this year they'll do about 900 million dollars in revenue. I, I think they'll uh, do a billion.
1: Yeah.
0: A, a billion, fine, a billion. Uh, two so or keep three it simple. years. Ago.
1: Keep the math simple.
0: Two or three years ago, they were doing a billion dollars. So we're talking about more than 10% of their sales are getting evaporated by this regulatory change. Now that these sales are much lower margin than the rest of the business, but that is still a lot of headwind, right? A, a lot of sales headwind, yeah. a pretty
1: good earnings headwind, just to put that in perspective. And oh, by the way, all of that, a majority of that happened this year. So even with that, look, the capital markets business has been, no one could have predicted this to happen, right? Yeah. Um, which has really changed changed everything about defense. But um, you know, for analysts had them doing eight hundred and twenty million dollars in sales this year, and they're going to do a billion dollars. I mean, you know, mostly because of this hundred thirty million dollars in sales that they they predicted, but they also couldn't. Because at the end of the day, you don't know what the band's going to be like, even with the regulatory change, right? Because you know, some mutual funds, from what I've heard, they still want to send the print; they just want to do it, right? You know, they want to slowly roll that off. Of hey, th- and th-
0: I can th- see that because you know, if you're if you're delivering, like when I get my bait statement online, I pretty much just trash it, don't look at it. But there is something about sending, especially in boom markets, sending a paper statement with, you know, like a, a branded fidelity and the person sees, hey, my $10,000 grew to 11500 Like it does form a little bit of a bond. It's the old, you know, JCPenney. One of the things they said when they lost, when Ackman took over with uh, the old Apple guy and they tried to turn it around, they stopped doing mailers and they said that really decreased their store traffic. And it's funny because over the summer, Bed Bath & Beyond stopped doing mailers in 2021. And next quarter, they come out and say, that was a mistake. It, it decreased foot traffic. And yeah, that's different than these paper statements, but I, I'm just saying it is, there is brand there, right? Like some, a lot of people are sloping in,
1: it does have an effect and it is a different effect than email. Exactly. And it is. And, and that all happened this year. And, um and I believe, in my heart of heart, like that's what forced them to say, you know, we gotta be careful. Like, you know, we're losing this, you know, that's even though it sounds good with the story that I'm telling, like, you know, on the business perspective, they're losing a lot of business, right? Um and it it was profitable, right? It wasn't like it was, you know, maybe low margin is better than no margin. Um, and um, I think that kind of forced them to say, Hey, we need to just focus on the software because we have this, you know, just, just to reiterate on both sides, on the capital market and investment management, they do have a moat, much more so on the capital market side, but they really are, you know, a big player. And I'll, I'll cool. get into that later. Okay. I just want to kind of finish my thought on um, on that. That forced them to, I think, stay focused because um, I don't like companies with a lot of debt. I don't want a company that I own to go to zero. Um, And they were really diligent. And I think that's what now in 2018, fast forward a year, when when what I think something happened that really changed um, the way I thought about the company is, look, I'm not a huge activist investor fan, but I do believe some activists can add tremendous value. Mm-hmm. And um, what happened here was an activist by the name of Jeff Jakobowicz. Um, he came in Simcoe Capital and took a significant stake. I mean, he owns the big, largest shareholder outside of, uh, you know, BlackRock, right? Yep. He took a 3.3 million, 10% stake in the company. Um, and you know his background is activism but that like, he he's he wants to be involved like right? he wants to be involved and in, and he's a software guy Like he had a huge winning with teller who's on the board of that company um he he was uh, really involved in um kind of blanking on that one uh the 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 print the mailings that the 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 stamp what was it stamp company um uh uh just recently the the stamp um you know stamps.com is it yeah. Stamps.com. He was like the oh. top five investor. <laughs> okay, yeah. He wasn't on the board, but it's, you see the same, you see a pattern, right? Like, you know, there's going through change and people don't yep. value the change accordingly. Right. So he is that kind of guy. And I know you plugged in some of your podcast guests, but I, I believe this is the perfect time to plug, to reiterate a couple that you've had, both of us had, but you know, you can, you can put the links on this as well, but I want to just mention Dave waters and, and Jeff Moore, um, you know, and, and blend, Ben, Ben Claremont, because those three, I think those podcasts will kind of I've evolved as an investor. And a lot of those things I've evolved because of some things I've seen. And, um, you know, one with Dave Waters and and Jeff Moore, first and foremost, like they, they talk a lot about uh, Peter Kamen and um, Rob Alpert and, and Clark Webb, Like they have a playbook, right? And that playbook just for some reason doesn't get, people don't get excited about in the short term, but it works. It's like, you can't predict the business all the time, but you can predict, I think you can predict people and what they're going to do. And when Jeff came in, you know, I had, um, I read about him and and I, I already kind of liked him and I wanted to own it. I didn't really own it. I think I actually traded a little bit and lost, actually lost money. And the thing just went straight down. Um, and, but I liked what he was doing. And by the way, he got on the board with no, just pretty much walked in. Like I, I don't know what the process, right? There was no. I mean, there was no campaign or anything. Just came in, came on the board, and then I think once he started, the communication was just much more was much more focused on we're going to build a software company. We are a software company, and that's when they announced their forty four percent software by two thousand twenty four, and it reverberated around the company. And people have talked to I me. Mean, they they at that point in time, I think they became a software company and they said to themselves, we're going to focus entirely on doing this. It's going to be our mission. We're going to have to make a lot of short-term sacrifices, right? Cause they had to lay off a ton of people in print and that had to have been difficult, right? That is always difficult to do. And, and, you know, they've quarter after quarter, they talked about how hard that was um, to lay off I mean, thousands, a thousand people or something, right? I mean, yep. that's, that's a lot of people. Um, and, uh, but, but doing that, I think, Doing that in 2018 and 2009, um, you started seeing it slowly. You started seeing the business become less volatile. The IPO market still was not that great. Um, the M&A market was, was, was better. I think that was helping them a lot. But in, in uh, 2020, when they reported the fourth quarter earnings um, in February, this is February, right? Before everything happened, they had blowout quarter. Like it was yep. amazing. Everything that they had talked about, Boom, was just like everything, you know, the software was growing, they had the print was slowing down, you know, the, 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 the you know, you could see the, 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 the light at the end of the tunnel where they would eventually stop hemorrhaging print sales. Because um, at the end of the day, people need print stuff, right? And they're the go-to people, right? So, I mean, it's always going to be part of their business. So that happened. And then COVID happened, right? So I think I was just in the right place at the right time. Like, I was excited already when they announced this earnings. And then, oh, by the way, COVID's happening. Right, so you had these two things happen at this exact same time, where there was an inflection point where you see the business actually turning, where software was becoming just bigger and bigger, and everything they've been saying for quarters um, was, you know, they were actually for the first time. I think they started this in two thousand nineteen late. They started being super conservative on like yep. uh, on guide on everything and giving you less information. Um, forward-looking because they were just sticking with you know the, we're going to do this we're going to do this we're going to do this but you know we can't you know, we, we can't control the volatility so that happened and COVID happened and that's when I took a position I said you know this company you know, I didn't take a position then actually because I was worried about COVID because I was like oh man that, that's great that they're doing this but you know no one cares it was, man it was the end of the world right and February wasn't the end of the world yet right I, as I recall it was like um Things were getting bad. Like, I, didn't want, I'll honest, I, I didn't want, i would be honest, I didn't want to be in the market, right? You knew there'd be panic, right? You see senators like, have, you know, selling their stocks, right? And, well, uh, you didn't
0: find so, out about the senators selling their stock until a couple months after that.
1: <laughs> right, right. So, um, so then in, in April, um, they announced earnings and, uh, and they announced first quarter earnings. This might have been May. And then they, this was what got me really excited. And this, I believe, was all because of Jeff Jacobitz. In the heart of, um, no, actually, so I, I purchased shares at the bottom when I think in, in April was the bottom. Uh, Fidelity had blown out. I, I, w- I was told that the portfolio manager l- l- retired and they just unloaded 10, like an 8% position Everything as everything was blowing up. So stock went to 450. I bought it, I, I bought some shares there because my thesis was, this guy's doing the right thing, it's not a zero. And plus like the bankruptcy business, that's a huge part of their business that's not it's not anything now because no one's going bankrupt but that's a huge part of their business um so that happened and then um and then they reported first quarter good quarter but then they did something like wild like i do not see companies uh, you never would expect that rr donnelly company to go out and they they went and bought a bunch of eight and a half eight and a quarter percent coupon debt um at a massive discount with cash and stock like that is just some. That was um. I think trading like in the eighties, right? Uh, you know, eight and a quarter percent coupon debt in the eighties, right? Um, and they use their their uh, their revolver. <laughs> you know, these are just things that you don't see companies do. And,
0: and it's a really good trade because everybody wants share buybacks, right? But buying eight and a half percent debt at eight at the eighties, that is a basically risk free ten percent return as long as. You know, if you're, if you're going to hit financial distress, it's not going to be risk-free because that's going to push you into bankruptcy. But short
1: of that, I mean, it's just an incredible, incredible trade. So that that's what I think the turning point for me got me super excited in the company. I was like, this this is, I now, like a big knock on the company then was like, they don't trust management, right? It's like our Donnelly people, like they're going to go out and lever themselves and buy debt. You know, they're going to take more leverage, right, and buy companies, which they could have done, Um but that told me they're not going to do that. These guys, I don't know what they they did in their board meeting, but to go out and do that when nobody else was doing that—people thought that people so, out, I mean, just nobody else was doing stuff like that. Yeah,
0: so th- that's great background. But let's let's fast forward a little bit to today because I'm worried we're going to start running into a little bit of time constraints here. So that's great background on the story. We, we've got the spin, we've got everything. Uh, you know, today the print business is largely gone away. A lot of their business let Let's say the business state, it's benefiting from a lot of trends. It's benefiting from the SPAC trend. It's benefiting from the M&A trend. We talked about that. I want to talk about two things. A, you mentioned, and you said we we're going to talk about it later, the moat they have as kind of the largest provider of SEC uh, connections. And B, how, are, how specifically are they benefiting from the SPAC trend? Because I think we can talk valuation too. I think the market is clearly saying this is a one-time boom where you and maybe the company would say, well, actually, there's probably some legs and there's probably some
1: things on the back ends to that. So we can start either moat or how they're benefiting. Right. So um, you know, thank you for stopping me there. I just, I, I, I'd like to give too much background, but it was important. So on the capital, let's just keep away from the investment management side because it's smaller. Um, yeah. On the capital market side, which has really been a big driver, it's really accelerated all their plans. They're, you know, 44% 2024, all these long term goals that they had pre COVID all got accelerated yep. because of this massive, we have never seen the capital markets like this. I mean, not even in two, in 2000, right? The We are 20 IPOs away from doubling last year, which was a record year, yep. you know? So they're the only company on the capital market side. They're the only company that can service the issuer, like full stop. They can, from being private to IPO, to SEC filings, to ERP, to SOX, M&A, Let's just company.
0: talk Real quick. So servicing them as private, IPO, and public.
1: What are they going to do for private companies? Just help the filings. They, they, they can print stuff. They can help their filings. They can help with accounting. They have so many things that they can do th- with that. And by the way, help you set up everything to go public, right? No. So, Which banks do too, but they use them as well. And they invested in this business, as you can imagine, three or four years ago when everybody was going private, right? So and- the things they were able to do. So that's how they would help the, the private
0: side. I think the the jewel, but it, it is uh it is quite volatile, right? Because you need IPO volume, but the jewel is the IPO business. So when a company is IPOing, what is DFIN doing from them and what are they getting paid for it?
1: Well, the biggest, you know, the biggest driver of sales is really printing their documents, right? They 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 print a lot of prospectuses, right? Yep. And so, it's literally just printing the prospectuses, what they're getting paid printing for. Printing the prospectuses, the digital filings. Um they they'll help, you know, set up meetings and, and a lot of paperwork that goes on between the bankers and then the issuers like they have all these remote offices. They will um, they have venue, which is a data room that helps on some of those things. Uh, that's more for m a but it's helping the IPO as well. So they'll do a lot of little things like that um, to really expedite the process. Right. And um, by the way, last year during COVID, like they're the prime reason why a lot of I mean, a lot of ipos were done virtually it's because of companies like defin that were able to really manage everything on the compliance side because i think people don't realize there's a lot of compliance related stuff that goes on when you're doing especially an ipo i think more so than follow on offering much more so than a private offering uh, at least on the on the on the venture capital side but on the ipo side there's so many laws there's so many laws and you know you use defin because you know that they're not going to mess it up Yep. On the printing side, like you can't just go to Kinkos, right, and print a document. There are so many checks and balances to go on with, with 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 paperwork. Um, it's incredible. So talk,
0: I talk to anyone who's gone public, and they will say the six to nine months. Leading up to the IPO is like the worst months ever to be a manager because there's just so much going on. And as you said, it is so regulated. Like you can't do anything. I always get frustrated because, you know, these IPO guys will have the Net Roadshow, right? It's netroadshow.com. And sometimes they'll have slides, but you can't download the slides. You can't save the slides or anything. It's like, I, I want these. I want to save them for my files or something, even if I'm not interested, but you just can't keep them. So yes, super regulated. And uh, obviously you need someone to hold your hand because the other interesting thing is you're only going to do it once, right? You're not going to build this thing in-house or something. You have to go to an outsource provider because as an IPO
1: company, you do it once. Right. So they are, I mean, they have like 65 to 70% market share. I've never figured out the answer to this, but for some reason on the biotech side, they have an over 95% market share of initial public offering filing. So they'll, I mean, they'll literally do everything. And these yep. things cost money. I mean, a, to put it in perspective, a bit—a traditional IPO, that's where they make a lot of money. On the larger side, like a large IPO, like an Alibaba, you know, think about a big IPO, right? You know, one that you'd read about a big one and they're making, what, you know, two to $3 million in sales. Um, that's how much they get out of a big IPO. Um, same, maybe not so much, but on an M a big merger, the amount, same thing, the amount of documents and compliance related to a big merger, that's also a big moneymaker for them. Um, and, uh, that is why the SPAC boom is will, should have benefit them tremendously going forward. Um, and I want to just on, on the SPAC side, it's actually not the, the, the SPAC where they make much money on. They don't make money. I mean, to file a SPAC, it literally you pay them like 25 grand or something. Um, it's when the spec, when they merge with somebody, the complexity involved. Um, that's where they'll they'll do as much as a traditional IPO.
0: Yeah, and, and that's you you front ran me, but th- this is one thing the company said. You know, a lot of people look at this year's results, which there has been a mammoth spec boom. I think almost 500 specs of IPO so far this year. I can't remember exactly, but people look at this year's results and say, "Oh yeah, you guys were a huge spec boom beneficiary." As I said, you were the one who said this is a picks and stuff we'll play for the spec, but the company would argue, "Hey." The SPACs are just the beginning. Now there's 300 SPACs that are waiting for a merger target. And when all of these SPACs find a merger target, we're going to get M&A revenue from them. And that's 10 times what we got from the SPAC. And by the way, now that they're public, they're going to need somebody to do their compliance and reporting stuff. And guess, we've already got this great relationship with them. So that's 500 potential new customers that are going to create
1: annual recurring revenue for us. Exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, they talked a little bit more about this this quarter and a half, but what what I think is kind of a, a big wild card with the company is, you know, they, the, the IPO activity, we'll be honest, like that's volatile and look, you know, it can, can go away tomorrow. Um, we know that. I mean, I, I worked at an investment bank and missed my background. It, it could literally go away tomorrow. Yep. Um, but what it has done and, and what you're starting to see more is that active disclosure, like that business, it's a significant part of their business. It's like a third of their software business is filing financials actual you know 10ks 10q's um that is that's nothing I mean that's not exactly. a volatile business
0: but, oh. so that's what they do for a public business right if I'm a public business I'll contract with dfin to I give them my 10k and they file it for me is that right so exactly and, and DFIN, that's on the electronic side so we've moved on from the printing side this is the gro- one of the growth businesses and everything for the electronic side is dfin the largest provider of the electronic filing for SEC Uh, no it's workiva
1: okay so uh, what's about defense market share on the electronic side for publics well it's on the electronic side for for publics well they they do a a couple business they have venue which is the data room right which you can put on the digital side um that's going to be lumpy even though it is a software service business i mean you do pay yearly but you know if there was no deals or no activity you could see the the turn be a little bit higher um but active disclosure really is something that I think they're super excited about. Cause that was a business that was not invested in, not invested in. And it it they had a dominant market share. And where Kiva came in, boom. You know, we have this great platform. We it's all cloud based. You can you your Coca-Cola, you can be in Europe and, and United States, and you can all collaborate together real time. Um you know, you control the workflows with your your auditors and your accountants that so you can do. They, they did that and they pushed that. Um, and that company, by the way, is, you know, 20 times, 25 times sales. Are they growing, publicly traded? Public WK trading at, um, you know, 15, 20% sales. Um, it's It does more sales because it's bigger um, than, than active disclosure, than active disclosure. Um, but Active Disclosure, they've invested a ton of money in it. And they they said multiple times that they're winning. They're taking back market share. They're taking back market share from from Rokiva. And so Active Disclosure actually grew more. Rokiva grew thirty-five 30% in the third quarter, this quarter. Um, and stock went up, you know, 10%. And But it's huge multiple stock, right? 20 times sales. And uh, obviously not making money because it's in growth mode. Active Disclosure... You know, thirty-five percent in the third quarter. I mean, so you're a company growing more. So, I mean, look, you, I'm not going to put a twenty revenue multiple and active disclosure, which I don't know it probably does a hundred million dollars. And so, but you know, you could, right? And it's it's taking back market share, and it's easy. It's easier for them to take back market share. If they say, uh, from what I've heard, and read for, heard from some clients, their new offering, their new software offering, is was the, from the ground up. They redid the entire platform, and it is superior than Workiva. Obviously, that's what they're going to say, and I've heard that from some clients, but at the end of the day, people don't need Workiva if they can just do everything with Donley Financial, right? So So that
0: actually actually brings me into two questions on the risk side I, I wanted to do on stickiness and competitors. So let's start with stickiness, right? When I'm a company, and obviously DFIN does a lot of different things for a lot of different companies at a lot of different points in their lifestyle, so you can't brush it, brush it with two broad strokes, right? But if I'm a co- company doing SEC compliance with DFIN and I submit my annual report through them and DFIN puts it onto SC Edgar or something, I would guess that's quite sticky, right? Because all of my 2020 numbers are loaded in there. If I want to go get a whole new provider for 2021, I basically have to reconnect the whole thing. But then when I do, Defen gets lots from M&A and IPOs. Those are one-offs. I would guess those are not sticky, so you have to go win someone basically every time. Am I thinking about this correctly? Or is there like kind of hidden stickiness in the IPO business I didn't think about? Or is the SEC business not as sticky as I laid
1: out? The SEC business is sticky. and an M&A deal, it can get interesting. But first and foremost, in an M&A deal, a lot of times it's the same company. The, the two companies use the same providers, right? Yep. So that doesn't doesn't matter, and and it, it'll definitely won't matter when they're now merging, and there's another competitor like Workiva, for example, or on the you know in uh, you know, SSNC on the data de- you know, data room side, you know, you're, you're, it's more competition, sure. But ultimately, they're on an M and A deal that they're getting paid at one time a ton of money to process that transaction, and they're right there in front of you, you know, trying to earn the business, and because they provide so many, and this is what. You know, haven't mentioned because they provide all these different platforms. There's there's room to negotiate here or here or here. No one else can do that, right? Like they they will cut deals and in certain segments, like okay, we'll give you a discount on the SEC filing if you do our if you, we print these documents for you, right? And then vice versa, right? Whatever fits the client's needs. Um, and they're able to do that. I believe that's why they don't give so much detail on every individual segment. They try to, but it's a challenge, right? Is there are all the businesses are intertwined. Like people in the past said, oh, we'll just split off the print business. It's not that easy because it is so important to them because it puts them in the front door because everyone needs to print prospectuses. So you're getting everything. And a lot of clients would just say, okay, I'll just do everything with you. Yeah, right? yep. it happens more and more and more, and and you can see it in their numbers where this year that they're going to grow ten percent when they lost ten percent of their business, right? Like phenomenal.
0: Let me ask um, one more question, just on the M and A side, right? If I'm going to do M and A, and one of defense products is data room, if I'm going to do M and A, who decides and how do they decide who's running the data room? Right? Is it? I'm guessing is it the bank that's going to decide? Hey. We've Andrew's private equity. Andrew's industrial firm is up for sale. He's going to load everything up to
1: this data room because that's who we always work with. Or is it someone else who's deciding? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. My gut is it's the bank um, in conjunction with the company, but I don't know. I don't. I don't want to tell you something that's wrong. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it's the bank because I, I was in
0: private equity before, and every yeah. the banks would always you know if it was a Jeffrey deal, it would always be on whoever Jeffreys was using. If it was exactly. so, I'm pretty sure it's the bank, but I could be. I it could be private
1: equity firms. I, I'm not I've heard that sure, before. Like wondering. they whine and dine at the junior banker, like so. It's like it's never the senior person's decision for some. But reason.
0: again, that's probably it's tougher because if you do the bank and you know the bank runs 200 processes a year, the banks have. they've probably got a lot of pricing power there because there's only seven banks who kind of matter, but it's also probably extremely sticky because if you've won the bank and the bank wants to shift, well, you're going to have an awful lot of angry bankers for six months who say, Hey, we have to go recreate all of our models because you guys are trying to save $10,000 or something, you know? So, uh, that's interesting. Let's, so we've talked about a lot. I want to talk about, uh, the growth of the company this year. You mentioned 10% growth, but it's actually probably better than that, right? Because they've got the print decline and I tweeted out this slide in my in my prep tweets and people can go see them. I'll link them in the show notes. But they've got, the print is going down while the software business is going up. So it's 10% consolidated, but the really valuable stuff is actually growing quicker. So let's talk valuation and how you look at the kind of, Definitive even publishes in their investor deck a little sum of the parts slide. How do you think about the sum of the parts and the
1: overall valuation here? Oof this is a tough question. And I, I think this is why I went into the company in so much detail. I the thing is, they're all important to understand because unfortunately it's not so simple because, you know, we don't know how much of it's sticky and what's not. Cause I mean the bear case, it, you know, I think people at this point understand the software is it's golden, it's good. Right. And the print business, it's the decline. It's, it's manageable because at this point, you know, they had 40% of their business was print in 2017, 20% now it, that's, it's not going down much more at this point, right? And then all that cash that they have going into the software, they're going to generate $800 million of free cash flow over the next four years. I mean, four or five years, $800 million free cash flow. They have zero net debt. Like, what What are they going to do with that, right? That's incredible. I think People they're going to buy really that. Let me tell you, sell side analysts don't talk about $800 million of free cash flow. What are you going to do with it? Um, that is extraordinary. Um, yeah. I believe they'll do buybacks and, and, um, invest in the business, but to answer your question on the growth, this is really difficult because they say in their deck, right. That, you know, they, they believe one to 2%, right. Going forward. And that it's, that includes some print decline and then the, the, 15 to 25% software growth, um, which they believe that like, that's how they're modeling. That's how they're running their business. Um, but a lot of these D you, you, we it's just so hard because they don't, break down how much is one time right and this year 2020 has been it's been a record-breaking year and um you know on the just even on the traditional IPO side there's it's we've never seen anything like this um I mean on the SPAC side that people can talk about that but on the traditional IPO side I mean there are only so many private companies right um and you know you can see that this continue for a few years and if it does I mean thing's super undervalued right um but what i think people don't understand and this is why i gave the background again if you just revert to the mean which i think is impossible to do because it's a totally different company but if you just revert to a transactional mean this company is still going to make you know three to four bucks like i don't think people understand that that they that's how it's run because the software business and it's, it's becoming exponential it's growing exponentially like this is not, you can't just model. I mean, this company was doing 15% more EBITDA margins in 2017. They're doing over 30% now. Um, mm-hmm. And in a pullback, they're still going to be doing 25% margins.
0: Just to add on to what you said, because as I was re- researching this, you know, the stock had run so much. I was like, oh, I missed it. it it's probably trading at 30 times EBITDA or something right. Uh, right now. Right. And it's not, it's trading at seven times EBITDA. So I, I I was getting really excited, right? I was like, oh, software business going quickly, masks that the overall the overall business is growing, but software business going quickly. And the two things that were jumping out to me, and you address one of them, A, it just like, the they don't give great, they've started to get better, but they don't give perfect segment disclosure yet. And I was noticing there was lots of jumping around between, hey, like there were stuff of, is this recurring in nature versus reoccurring in nature? And then there would be lots of jump between, of our sales are print, but 20% of our sales are print. And it was just going in lots of different directions. And again, look, I prepped for this podcast this morning. It's not like I've spent, you've got 18 months following the company, but I was was very much noticing, I know I'm not doing a great job of saying, but, but I was very much noticing that they were jumping between numbers and stuff. And you could tell that they were maybe trying to hide something, or maybe they didn't quite know how to explain it, or maybe it's just complicated, but there was something there that was standing out to me.
1: No, I love that you said that because it's the truth. I mean, I I did prep for this a little bit and tried to address the that problem. It, it is a problem. It is confusing, um, and then I think a lot of the time, they say sixty percent of their business is recurring in nature um, because a lot of transactions. I mean, if you don't see it on the IPO side, you're going to see it in the M and A side. You're going to see yeah. it in other places. Um, so I think I think that sixty percent number, they're they're very comfortable with that, and that's a lot of that's going to be on the software side. Um, but just on the transaction, like it's not just IPOs. And we've seen not we haven't seen bankruptcies. We haven't seen a lot of these other things that usually are a sweet spot for them. And that's what's great about the business. I mean, it is, you know, yeah. they, they they can prepare for the they, they can be do well in different markets, right? And that allows them to be confident with their capital allocation. Um, but I think they can't accurately predict what will happen, right? And and like active disclosure, right? Like that's growing. A lot of that growth, I mean, a lot of that's coming from internal investment and winning market share, but a lot of that's also coming from the IPO business growing so much. That's not, not one time, right. Just getting new active disclosure clients because there's more IPOs and they're getting the business just 100%, almost, probably 100% of the time. Yep. Right. That going forward, that will be recurring, but that, you know, the incremental growth from the IPO that won't be growing. Right. So I think it's just so hard for them to, it's so hard for them that at this point, I think they just stop trying to explain it all because they don't always—they don't know. They cannot predict. They cannot predict what the capital markets will do. Um, they only give quarterly guidance now. I don't think they will ever give yearly guidance again because the capital markets is so, um it's so volatile. I mean, yeah, they, I believe Which uh, makes, uh, yeah, but it's hard to model, right? But you can model. You can predict what they will do, right? And you you can with reasonable. Um, confidence know that they're going to generate a ton of cash. Like when I say 800 million, I mean, that, that ranges can range from 500 to 800, but that's still $500 million of free cash flow. like for a company at $1.6 billion. So, you know, 33 million shares out, no debt, $50 stock price, you know, 1.65. I mean, it's not a big company, $500 million on a base case, is a ton of free cash flow that they can do wonderful things with include, Doing these little tuck-in acquisitions, which they haven't done. I mean, a tuck-in for a platform company can be incredibly creative, Which what we've seen from Broadridge, right? Um, that,
0: that actually really transitions nicely to my next question, right? So, it, this is trading seven times EBITDA, probably less when you probably less as of this year, right? Because they're growing very quickly still. They even said, "Hey, October trend, on their Q4 on yeah. their Q3 call, they said October trends were great. We're still growing pretty rapidly, right?" So, but. Even after a big run, stocks stops up 3x since the beginning of the year. This is trading at seven times EBITDA. It's not like this is unknown, right? Like, I don't, I try not to read too much sell side research, but B. Riley covers it. They have a blowout Q3 quarter. B. Riley ups their price target from 40 to 52.
1: Six times EBITDA this year. Say again. Yeah, the EBITDA, their price target EBITDA multiples.
0: And they say our, our price target is six times EBITDA this year, five times EBITDA next year. Sell side can be wrong, right? They Obviously, they can be wrong. They can be too conservative. They can be too aggressive. But I'm just saying, it's not like this isn't known. The market is looking at this saying, this is seven times EBITDA business, despite the software growth we've talked about, despite the good margins, all this. Analysts are looking at this and saying this. So what is the market missing here? It feels to me like the market's worried that Earnings are really inflated by the SPAC and IPO boom, and that's going to fall off and they'll go to the clip. But is it something else, or you can dive a little bit into why you're not too worried about that IPO clip?
1: Okay. So, David Waters, I'll mention these, the David Waters um, and then Jeff Moore, because what I think everyone misses always, the sell side especially, is capital allocation and what that can do for business. Um, if they're taking money, they're, they're taking working capital. And what a lot of companies do, they'll pay a dividend, right? They'll just buy back stock, which they're doing. But rarely they'll, they'll throw that money into a, a business that's extremely, extremely highly valued. And that's what they're doing. And that's predictable. And you know that's going to continue. They've already raised their CapEx um, uh, capex guidance. That coupled with the buybacks that they're going to start doing, in I believe, in mass, which, as you know, buybacks... Just don't get credit. I mean, you have your Liberty Bros and stuff, but at the end of the day, people don't care about buybacks. But when you have a business that could be growing revenues and EPS and is investing in the business in a big way that's transformative, plus Mm -hmm. the buybacks, like, you know, you have this compounding effect that I think only certain investors are going to be able to see. Right. I mean, you can play the game. Oh, you know, the software business growing 20%. It's, you know, 25% of the business going to 44. You can put a, you know, 10 revenue multiple on it. Boom, 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 $100 stock. You can do all that math. But at the end of the day, you can't control any of what happens. But you can control that these guys are going to be investing in their business and buying back a ton of stock. And then the next five years, even if the sales don't do anything, I mean, they could be making 8 to $9 in earnings and have a business that's 50% software. Yep. Right. That it will be worth a lot more.
0: So let me ask you, this actually segues nicely into maybe my last question. Incentives here, right? Because I was a little surprised. There, There is a big semi-active shareholder, I believe, Simcoe. Hey, the guy, the guys at Simcoe are very sharp and they filed a 13D. So they're active. They're on the board. They own 10%. So that's nice. But I was a little surprised, you know, like the CEO, his stock, he owns about 300,000 shares, that's worth what, what am i doing the math in my head at 15 million dollars at today's prices right so that, that's great but it's uh it's he makes 4 million dollars a year and he only has 15 million of stock because the stock's 3x this year right before that he was kind of making 4 million and he owned about 5 million and you know the the board of directors most of them own you know maybe a million dollars worth but they make 250,000 dollars a year for being on the board and i I get it's a spin-off, which means it's not founder letter or anything, but I was just a little surprised, you know, you're not seeing insider buying, the insider ownership just feels pretty low. So I just wanted to talk about the incentives here for a second, because that that seemed the one worry to me. You have a business that just did this pivot and the management says, we're geniuses. Let's go buy another SaaS company. Let's lever up. Let's issue equity. Let's go on an acquisition spree. We're genius here. And I was worried they might not be fully aligned, if all that makes sense.
1: I'll be completely honest with you. I think it's, it is a risk. When I started conversing with other smart people that like these types of stories in 2019, they all thought it was fascinating. Um, but they all had that one put that that nobody questioned the print or the software. Nobody questioned that. What they questioned was, what you just hit the net, you know, what you just talked about was like, I don't trust these guys. Like they were part of our done, which you saw. That's what I was going to say, yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is why they don't own a ton of stock where they get spun it off. And, um, all the stock they own for the most part, I mean, maybe 20% they bought on a dip, but most of it was given to them right. Via options and, and, uh, just being a spinoff company. Um, so look, I've, I've talked to these guys a couple times. I've more importantly, I've talked to a lot of people that work with them. What I do understand is they're incredibly sharp and know the business. Like, I mean, their, their backbone is RR Donnelly. Right. And and what they did, they don't have direct experience in this transformation, but they've hired the right people and they're hiring a ton of people. And then this is why I've mentioned Jeff Jacobowitz like five times on this call. like And it's it's really the one of the biggest reasons I bought because I know he will be in there. He's got the playbook. And they're just going out this playbook, right? They're going off this playbook that's working. It's working very well. Um, and that gives me more comfort um, that they won't do They've said it multiple times. They will not do a big deal. They will do tuck-ins, you know, a $20, to $50 million deal. They won't do a transformative deal where they um, take on debt. Um, they've said that, but, you know, look, they don't have a prior case study, right? You know, their prior case study was they're all RR Donnelly people. Um, I do know one, another board member, Juliet Ellis, which was, um, and she was a big fund manager at, at Invesco AIM, uh, big time, small cap growth. Like, I know she's on the board. I know she she's good. Like, she, she will, I mean, the board is pretty good. Um, And then the management team, like, all I can say is everything they've said, they're executing, man. And, and from the first conference call, if you go back to their first conference call, the total mess, like, they've really improved. They've tried much better to communicate their story. And just, I see the actions. Like, you know, the actions do speak louder than words at the end of the day. Um, and you're seeing the execution.
0: Speaking of actions, one of the things I like is, look, last year, they bought back shares and they were buying back shares low, right? When the, this market was low. And the only time I believe there's been insider purchases in this company's history was at the end of March 2020, which is nice. But they were buying back shares when the stock when the stock was hammered and everything was hammered. And not of that, they were going and buying back their high yield debt, as you mentioned earlier, and it's one of those things. I do think actions speak a little louder than words. You know, I know so many companies say, "Oh, we're going to be aggressive when the the stock price goes down. We're going to hammer the bit." And guess what they do? You know, they pull they pull the peloton this morning and they they issue shares when their stock's down seventy percent or something. Or they sit on their hands, or they go and do deals instead of. And in this case, I mean, it's not to say that they won't, but you've got an active shareholder who's a board member who owns ten percent, and the history of the capital allocation recently has been we give it back to shareholders or we retire a really high cost debt at attractive prices. So I, I, I think you're, I, I think their actions speak to what they're, how they're looking at. It. And, you know, again, words mean, don't mean a lot, but go look at their deck and
1: everything they say, shareholder focus, laser focus on shareholder returns. Like it seems like they're running the right playbook here. I think so. And, and um, I mean, look, the same with, with P10 and David Waters, they don't give any forward guidance at all. They don't, there's no hype. Like it's all backward looking They give you everything. And then the, the actions you see, it's just creating value slowly, but surely. And yep. um, I mean, look, they have, they've had a much more success with prior companies, but at defense, it's just, I mean, it's been five years of the exact same thing over and over and over again. And that's why I had to give that story because you you cannot invest in this company without knowing that because your, your pushback there, that's exactly what the all the right investors think. I mean, but it's been five years of, not doing that. Um, and at some point, you have to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're doing the right things. Um, and then they're actually just doing what they said they're going to do. What do you think the end game for a defender here is? You know, I, I would think the end
0: game comes in one of four categories. They could just keep running the business as is, grow eventually. I, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw a levered buyback model. You know, again, Simcoe is on the board. You can go look at their 13F, they're in Altice as well. Uh, Altice hasn't been running the levered buyback model properly recently, but Clearly, Simcoe knows the levered buyback model, right? So that would be one. Number two, they could sell to private equity or strategic buyers. You mentioned Simcoe with stamps.com. Obviously, strategic buyers, private uh, equity there. Or number three would be they could go do a transformational deal, hopefully one that creates a lot of shareholder value. But Or I guess number four would be they could do some mismatch of it where they do some levered buybacks and they do strategic vaults on stuff. But if you had to guess, what's the end game for the company here?
1: Oh, so... I really just predict the future for me. Okay, right here, right predict, now, predict the future. I'm gonna predict the future. I don't want to. This is just my thoughts. Um, I don't think they'll do a transformational deal. I would not be super excited for them doing a transformational deal. I don't have the multiple. Um, and and I think there's enough investment opportunities within their business. Um, but look, the reason why I want to talk about, it, I mean, that that free cash flow, they never had this problem, right? Because they had a ton of debt and they were forced, essentially forced to buy back. Yep. They were forced to pay it down because of the terms were ridiculous, and they had this window last month, which was for me a, a, another inflection point. You, they could they could pay it all back with the revolver, and they did. So now they have essentially, as of the end of the year, they they're going to have no the net debt zero, so they can do whatever they want. They can do a lever recap, which will be accretive, right? They could they could raise a ton of money. I mean, they could do four three hundred million dollars debt deal and buy back a ton of stock. Um. Man, and and then look, I, I do believe, in my heart of heart, this was always set up to to sell to a Broadridge. But let me tell you, the time for Broadridge to make a deal, it's slowly, it's going away. And I want to say this on this call: if they don't make an offer for defense, they're they're not going to be able to buy it. I mean, at this rate, they're going to keep on investing in their business and growing. And as soon as that revenue number is able to turn consistently positive, I mean, this stock is going to have a massive re-rating because it is ultimately. And they're working on it. It is a pretty simple business to understand. If you really, I mean, they do a little bit of everything, they have software, they have a ton, they generate a ton of cash, they have a nice moat, it's a nice business, and it's super cheap, right? Right now, I mean that it's the value is the valuation is so low that they can be wrong and things can turn in such a big way, and it's still cheap. And then you got all this cash flow to buy back stock. I mean, you have this amazing things happening. I believe, I think they will. One, I think they're done with their buyback. I think they just finished it, honestly. They're gonna announce like a hundred million dollars buyback, right. I believe though over the next few months they're gonna announce like replace their fifty million dollars. I think they're gonna complete um and do a hundred million dollar you know buyback, which is it's not a lot at the end of the day, right? They're gonna invest more in their business. Um, and I don't know. I, I you know, a stale could happen. i I would be happy with it, I mean, honestly, but you know, we are seeing a turn in the investor base. I, I loved seeing the 930 holders. I mean, we saw Wasatch, which is a really smart investor, um, come in and Rice Hall James is a huge investor. These are big, you know, SaaS conversion holders, right? Um, so you're getting the institutional interest. The stock is going up. And when the stock price goes up, you know, things happen. Um,
0: you know, it's just,
1: it's interesting.
0: You mentioned the multiple it trades up because One of the things you would hear at the height of the SPAC boom when they were announcing deals, public companies would be like, oh, well, if we were getting taken over by a SPAC, you know, we trade at 10 and a SPAC would take us out at 30. And it's just funny because DFIN is benefiting from the SPAC boom and they trade at seven times EBITDA. And when you just saw the numbers, especially if you could just X out the print number, you know, just bring it all to zero right now. Obviously, you'd actually lose money there. But if you just looked at the software business side of this and a SPAC was taking it private, I think it would be a 40 or 50X EBITDA business, or it would trade at some revenue multiple or something. And right now it trades at seven times EBITDA and it's just surprising. And I, I think you're kind of right. It's a rotation in the shareholder base from, hey, we were here for the low multiple. We were here for the spin dynamics too. Eventually, especially as print continues to lose those headwinds, I think it goes to, hey, this is a set, maybe not perfectly SaaS, but SaaS-like business that forgets seven times EBITDA,
1: seven times sales might be the right number or something. That, that is what I believe. That's why Simcoe invested in this. I believe that's why Rice Hall, James, and Watch. I believe that's the, their primary drivers. Like This this is not a short-term thing. If, if if they get bought out, they get bought out, whatever. But if their software continues to grow at what you saw in the third quarter, which, I mean, the stock price up 25% in, in, in 15 days. If that continues, that's what every investor coming in is going to care about, their software. Yep. That's all they're going to care about. They're not going to compare about the capital markets, volatility. They're going to compare it. They're going to look at the software and be like, You know, in bad markets, that's still growing. In good markets, it's growing a lot. And it's becoming more and more of the business. It's going to be, you know, 50% soon. I mean, in a couple of years, that's ultimately what anyone's going to, I think that'll be the story. And that's why I say, look, if someone wants to buy it, they better do it now at the top of the market where they they have to have a fiduciary duty to say, okay, we have to sell. You know, because, you know, you know what happens when deals happen. I mean, because once that turns, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. So. I'm excited. I think that's it's so hard with the end game, which you don't know. We don't, we don't know, right? I do know there seem to be marketing less, which is a little bit odd, but um I don't I, like I, I am a little surprised, you know. I think they do one conference a year, but I, I subscribe to BAM
0: SEC and I look through the transcripts and there's no there's no conference transcripts where they're laying the story out or anything. They do have an investor presentation. I was a little surprised by that, but I, I'm cool with that. I'd rather my companies manage the business instead of go to conference, but it's a capital markets business. I kind of thought maybe. They go to these conferences, pitch investors for half, and maybe pitch bankers for half, but it makes sense. Hey, it's been over an hour, but I, I always want to give you, I, I always want to give the guest last word. Anything we didn't talk about that you think we should have talked
1: about? Anything we kind of glanced over that you wish we had hit a little harder or anything? No, it's good. And look, what I did want to, uh, education is a very important as an investor. We did talk a lot about the risks and those risks are very, maybe we should have started with them. This is a capital markets driven business and there's always risks in the capital markets. These guys do print a lot and there's risk in the print business. Um with any stock there's always things that can go wrong and you know just if anyone looks at this there's it, it's a good story. They um you know they have a lot of positive tailwinds uh and um but I do think we covered I mean we covered everything. Uh they have a good presentation on uh their website just New presentation came out today. This, this morning today. they were prepping for a podcast. Exactly. They they had a new presentation today. Um there's Good investors involved. There's, the, you know, the, the float seems pretty small. Like, the stock has run, and that's that's always hard and when a stock runs. I mean, if you look at the chart, it, it's 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 been volatile. Uh, it can be, and for some reason, it hasn't been volatile, but there's been some moments of extreme volatility. It's, and an, under, um, it's an
0: under two. Per, it's an under two billion company with a ten percent owner. Those are generally ripe for volatility, right? Because ten percent owner wants to get out. Boom, stocks stocks going down a lot as it kind of digests that, or you know, just bad day in the market or bad day with one seller, but yeah. Cool. Uh Richard, this has been great. Richard hosts the Riches and Niches podcast. You guys, all listeners should absolutely check that out. I, I think I've badgered Richard enough where he's going to let me on at some point. So hopefully I'll have an appearance on there at some point in the near future. But uh Richard, this was great. Thanks so much for coming on and looking forward to either having you on at some point in the near future or coming on to yours at some point. Thank you very much, Andrew.